Genesis chapter 29. Have you ever, let me, let, me, let me fast forward here a little bit. Have you ever found yourself in a place you never thought you'd be? Have you ever said, holy cow, I never thought my life would end up like this? All right. So I've met several people around here who, uh, and in, in my life, that they grew up, they had dreams, they had plans, they had all kinds of these things, and then life happens, stuff happens. Sometimes it's bad decisions. Uh, I've known several people that, you know what, I made one or two bad decisions, and guess what? I lost a year or two of my life uh, in prison. All right? And then there are other people that said, you know what, I thought I was in love. I had all the jittery feelings. I had all the butterflies. It seemed so wonderful. Who would have ever thought that it would turn into such a nightmare? And now, here I am divorced, or here I am remarried. Okay? Uh, have you ever said, you know what, I had this one career path, and I flunked out of it. I wanted to do that. I wanted to have this job. Too bad I couldn't do it. Too bad I majored in this because it was so interesting, yet nobody hires you to do this. All right? Any philosophy majors out there? All right? Those kinds of things happen in life, and you find yourself in a place where you thought, I never thought I'd be here. I never thought this would have happened to me. I never thought I would have suffered this loss. I never thought I would end up living here. How many of you in your wildest dreams never thought you'd live in Maine? We have a lot of transplants. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of transplants in this church. I'm from Oklahoma. Nobody would have, if you'd have asked me several years ago, do you think you'd ever live in Maine someday or in New England? Uh, and in Oklahoma, remember, anything, New England is anything past Indianapolis. That's all, that's all New England as far as we're concerned, and it's the Arctic tundra, of course. My parents still won't come up here for Christmas or in the wintertime or anything like that because they just think it's like what? They probably think it's like the county, okay, where there's 15 feet of snow on either side of the road, okay? And so... Okay, touche. There are parts of Maine that are like that, but certainly not here. Uh, we, can, we, can, we, can, we can carve out a path for anybody around here, no matter what winter it is. Well, life happens sometimes, and I'll tell you my own little story about that. Um, I be decided when I was a teenager that the... Uh, I didn't decide. The Lord called me. I'll just go ahead and say it, say it the, the, the real way it was. The, the Lord called me to become a missionary. I became a Christian when I was 13, 14, and then... By the time I was 17, it was, uh, it was very obvious to me that the Lord wanted me to be an overseas missionary, teaching the gospel to people who had never heard it. And in the church that I grew up, there was a, a woman who had spent 10 years, I think, as a, a missionary in a, a country in West Africa called Ivory Coast. All right, anybody ever heard of Ivory Coast? All right, Ivory Coast, there in West Africa. I had taken French in high school, and I was uh, pretty good at it, and they speak French here, and I thought, well, the Lord's just really preparing me uh, to go to Ivory Coast as a missionary. And so all through my college years, I majored in missions, and I was preparing to go to Ivory Coast as a missionary. And in the summer of 98, I got to go on a mission trip. And I met the missionaries there, and I talked to them pretty extensively about what it was like to serve there and the way the field was going and everything. And they told me something that was good and a little bit devastating all at the same time. They told me the missionaries really are taking a back seat right now and letting the local Ivorian people take over all the ministries here. And that's very good, because there aren't very many people in the world, but missionaries are unique in a lot of different ways, but there aren't very many people in the world who go into a career position saying, my goal is to work myself out of a job. My goal is to work here, reproduce myself here, and in a few years I plan to be completely unneeded. 
How many people go into a career that that's the, that's the idea? In a few years, I hope to be not needed at all. Okay? Uh, well, that was good. That was great news. I was glad to hear all of that. Okay? But it also meant for me, uh, maybe they don't need any new faces over here. Maybe they don't need any new missionaries over here. Maybe I need to start looking around. So the denomination that I grew up in had this initiative in Central Asia. They were going to start sending people to all the Stanistan countries. This is before 9-11, of course. Um, they were going to start sending people to all the Stanistan countries over in Central Asia. And they asked me to be a part of a team of people to go on what they call a vision tour, where you go to all these places, you walk around, you pray around, you scope it out, and then you say, you know what, I think the Lord is leading us to this country and this city and this place. And so that was what I was going to be a part of. I, and I was in Oklahoma, and the rest of the team was in Nashville, so I uh, went out to Nashville to meet the team and sit around and, and talk to them, get to know them a little bit, and um, then I went back to Oklahoma. And a few weeks later, I got a phone call. Wes, the team just really didn't feel like you gelled very well with them. Oh, okay. So opportunity lost. And that was pretty devastating too. And I'll, I'll give you the honest truth. I didn't gel with them at all. All right? Uh, this, is always the, this is always your own perspective, right? They were weird. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they were perfectly normal people, and I'm weird. But they were weird. Uh, they were very different from me. Their personality was very different from me. The way they lived, the way they talked, the way they interacted, it was all very different uh, from who I am. And so, even though it was pretty devastating at the time, obviously in hindsight, even, even pretty immediately, uh, shortly after that, I said, yeah, no, I don't know that I'd want to be stuck in a foreign city with those three or four people that are so very different from me uh, in personality. So uh, I started looking around again. So now here I am, uh, a missionary or a missionary in training who's uh, been around a little bit. I'd spent some time in Mexico. I'd spent some time in, in Africa. Uh, and I was preparing to go to Asia and all this. And I'm like, man, here I am, a missionary without a field. Missionary without a field. I have no idea where I want to go. And uh, I started um, interacting with this organization that sends English teachers as um, sort of uh, missionaries to Asian countries, different Asian countries. And a friend of mine and I said, you know what? I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go to Mongolia. That's right, Mongolia. Way colder than Maine, okay? Not, not as much snow, very dry, but way colder. They've already had negative 35, negative 40 this year. Uh, and they also get up to about 120 in the summer, okay? extreme temperatures in Mongolia, in the Gobi Desert. But he and I were going to be tough. We were going to be cool. We were going to go live in a yurt in the Gobi Desert and be awesome missionaries there. And then the fool went off and got married. And totally, totally ruined my career path. And so I kept communicating with the same organization. And I said, no way I'm going to Mongolia by myself without a friend. I'll go to China with, by myself without a friend instead. That would be a whole lot less intimidating. Uh, and it's not. China's a very intimidating place to live, by the way. But I ended up spending about 11 years there. Strange thing, if anybody had asked me, do you really feel called to China? I don't think even in the time that I was serving there would I ever say, you know what, I just really feel called to China, the Chinese people, this place. No. I often said the Lord sort of tricked me into going there. 
Uh, and while I was there, I still kind of had the idea of going to some of the Stanistan countries, but uh, it just didn't work out, and then 9-11 happened, and things just weren't going to happen. And I said, you know what? The Lord is working here in China, obviously. Uh, there are estimates that about 10,000 people a day come to the Lord in China. Why in the world would I want to move away from a place where the Lord's really working? All right? So I decided, you know what? I'll just stay in China. And I'm very glad that I did. I'm very glad that I stayed there for all that time. I'm very glad that I learned to speak Chinese there. I'm very glad that I met Susie there. And I'm very glad that I'm here now uh, as well. But it's just interesting sometimes. You find out, you see that life didn't turn out like you thought it would. You see that life is uh, taking you in a very different trajectory. And you can, you can really get depressed about it. Or you can kind of say, all right, don't I believe God's in control? Don't I believe that he, be he knows everything before it happens? Don't I believe that he can use anybody, anywhere to do anything, his will, anywhere? Well, let's go ahead and put that to the test. Let's put me in a place that I never thought I'd be, doing something I never thought I'd do, and let's just see what the Lord does there. Now, in our uh, passage this week, uh, that's where Jacob really is starting to find himself. Jacob probably had in his mind as a younger man that he, would, he was born in Beersheba, he was raised in, by, in Beersheba, and by golly, he was going to die in Beersheba. He was just going to be a Beersheba man, a Beersheba shepherd, all of his life. But that's not what happened. And he found himself... Uh, going north, going north, and really, uh, and the Bible often calls it east, um, and that's, a, that's sort of literal and sort of figurative, but he's going north and east, uh, away from his homeland. And along that way, last week or a couple of weeks ago, uh, I think it was last week, we saw that while he was going along the way, while he was in this predicament where he didn't know exactly what the Lord was doing or what was up in his life, in a place he never thought he'd be, the Lord gave him a dream. And in that dream, the Lord showed him his plan, or part of his plan, a glimpse of his plan. And Jacob woke up with this new perspective, with this new perspective. And so here he is going to be arriving at his destination with a little bit of newer perspective. Let's pray, and then let's start reading. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and what it teaches us. We ask you this morning, Lord, to open our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Whatever is said from the pulpit, whatever we read, Holy Spirit, you be our teacher and help us to internalize the message you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse 1. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was very large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. All right? And let's stop there for a moment. When I first started studying or first read this passage and said, okay, what's the big idea? What's going on here? What, what is the message I want to preach here? Uh, it really kind of almost at first seemed like nothing happens in here in this passage. The story doesn't really advance. It could all be sort of just sort of reduced to, and then Jacob arrived. And that's about it, okay? But, but, I started to do some, some, some real research, and this is where biblical scholarship uh, and knowing the original languages really uh, comes into play. Because I, I have a couple of sources. I have a, an online commentary that I was reading, but I also uh, was just sort of cruising around the Internet looking for any kind of a message on the first part of Genesis chapter 29. And there aren't very many of them out there, but I landed on a rabbi. 
And he was a Messianic rabbi, so he's a Christian rabbi. But here he is, and he's reading it, and he's reading uh, their names in Hebrew. So Jacob is not Jacob in Hebrew. Hebrew it's Yahov. Yahov, okay? And so he's reading their names like that. And every once in a while, he'll come to a Hebrew word, and he'll stop, and he'll say, now let me tell you something about this. And it was really fascinating. It was a really good sermon. It was really good. Uh, and he was, he was reading Hebrew and speaking Hebrew like it was his first language. He was also... Uh, speaking English like it was his first language. I don't know where he was from. I assume he was from Brooklyn. If, he, if his English and his Hebrew were both that good, I assume he's probably from Brooklyn. But he, uh, he was really starting to bring things out in the text there that, man, I didn't even see. I couldn't even see it before. So anyway, I'm really uh, thankful to him, whatever his name was. The other thing that I'll tell you, the other thing that I'll tell you is that translating is hard. We've talked about this a bit. I'm, a, I'm an armchair translator uh, from Chinese to English or from whatever language, whatever language. I, I understand language. That's the one thing that uh, I always did really well in, in school is foreign languages. And I can tell you that translating is hard. Going from one language to another is very hard because we often assume, we often assume that this word equals this word. So this word in this language equals this word in this other language. We were talking about that. Who was I talking about that with uh, recently? And we, we were saying, you know, some words, some words, okay, table just means table. All right? But actually, we were talking about it, and I said, you know, in Chinese, table doesn't necessarily just mean table. All right? Because they might call this a table, and we would never call this a table, would we? It's slanted. All of your chips would fall right off, wouldn't they? Okay? You would never eat around this thing. It's just not, it's not the, it, but they might call it a table. A juodza is what they might call it. Um, so anyway, words don't just, in one language, don't just equal the same words in, in another language. And uh, in this in this uh, passage, in this passage, there are words and phrases that really should not be translated completely literally. In, in, when, you, when you're choosing a Bible translation, a lot of times you, you want to say, you know what, I want something literal. I want a literal translation. I don't want some paraphrase. I don't want uh, anything where, there's a, uh, uh, where they've taken too many liberties with the original text. But I can tell you this right now. If they don't take some liter, uh, liberties with the original text, you won't know what they just said. It will lead you in the wrong way. And let me give you an example. And this example, uh, it's a place where here's what it literally says, and then they just translated it, Jacob continued. Jacob continued. Well, what could it possibly be that it would be so different, but they just translated it, Jacob continued. Uh, but there's some nuance behind it, too. Let me just show you what it is. So in, in our intelligible translation, the NIV that you're using right there, at the very beginning it says, Jacob continued. Right? Good. Nothing there. Nothing there. It's just... It's just two words, right? In the original, this is what it says. He lifted up his feet and goes. All right? And there's a translation. Look on BibleGateway.com. There's a translation called Young's Literal Translation. It is not a translation you'll ever find in a bookstore. And I would say don't buy it and start studying it because it will lead you astray. All right? There's a reason that the translators say, I'm going to and translate this from this strange way of saying it in Hebrew to a, a very understandable way in English. You want something that's understandable. But look at what it says. He lifted up his feet and he goes. And this is just after he's had this amazing worship experience. He's on the road. The road is hard. The road is away from home. The road is uh, maybe emotionally hard for him to take. But after he's had this visitation from the Lord, this vision from the Lord, and this glimpse of God's plan, what did he feel like the next day when he started on his journey? He lifted up his feet. Jacob had a spring in his step. The next day when he continued on his journey. But it would be very awkward if they translated every part of this 
very literally because it's, it, it doesn't go into very good English, intelligible English. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's very fascinating. And then the second one, uh, this is later in verse 6, uh, it said when he meets up with some people, he talks about Laban, his uncle Laban. And he says, do you know my uncle Laban? They say, yeah, we know your uncle Laban. And then he said, is he well? Is he well? And they say, yeah, he's well. Now, what could there possibly be that wasn't translated literally there that could possibly mean anything besides, is he well? Well, this is, this is what it says in the original Hebrew. Does he have shalom? Does he have shalom? Now, how many of you, that means something to you? Okay? How many of you, that means nothing to you? Okay? So, in this room right here, if I were to, if I were to make a translation for most of you, and put, does he have shalom, I would be putting a stumbling block in front of you because you have no idea what that means. But for those of you who know what shalom means, ah, there's some richness there. There's some richness there. So what does shalom mean? Some, sometimes people say, oh, it just means peace. But it means so much more than that. What it means is, does he, is he healthy? Is he, is he prosperous? And is he at harmony with heaven and earth? Well, that's a lot deeper. So why wouldn't we translate it that way? If we translated everything that way, do you know how thick the Bible would be? It's a big, thick book right now. But if we started taking those liberties and defining every sentence after we translated the sentence, the Bible would be that thick. And you'd say, I'm not, I can't, there's no way, that's not readable, nobody can do that. So, of course the translators are right to just say, is he well? But if you know what he really asked was, does he have shalom? Well, there's some richness there for you, okay? And this kind of stuff, is all through this passage, by the way. All right, let's keep going. There are a few symbols to take note of in this passage. It's very rich. It's things that you just peruse over it. You just peruse over it. You just skip over it. You just say, okay, that's neat. Okay, that's a, an unimportant detail. That's just a detail. That's just, that's, just, that's just part of the story, okay? But there's so much in it. Symbol number one, the East or Eastern peoples. And this is not a racist statement, okay? In the Bible... Uh, you probably didn't know this, but in the Bible, especially in Genesis, let's just say in Genesis, anytime somebody goes east, they're going away from God and away from the will of God. Did you know that? So Adam and Eve, uh, they ate the fruit in the middle of the garden. And after the Lord put them out of the garden, do you know which direction they went? They went east. And they looked back at the garden, and God had put an angel with a flaming sword. You cannot come back to the garden. You have sinned. Your relationship with God is broken. You cannot go back here and um, have access to the tree of life. So they went east. After Cain killed Abel, and God confronted Cain, said, What have you done? You've killed your brother. And Abel said, My punishment is too, too hard to bear. And then it says, uh, Cain went off to the land of wandering. Where was the land of wandering? To the east. To the east. And when the people who came to build the Tower of Babel, it says they found a, plain, a plains in the land of Shinar in the east. Everywhere they go, all the, all the people who are going away from God and going away from the will of God are going to the east. Where did Abraham live at the beginning of his life? In the east, in Ur of the Chaldees. And God said, arise and go west, young man. Okay? And so he went really basically north and then south. Northwest and then southwest. And he went far away west from where he was. And when God exiled his people at the end of the Old Testament and said, we need to go back to the basics and you've left my will, he kicked them out of the land of Israel and he kicked them out of Jerusalem. And where did they go? They had to go east. East. Okay? 
So that's very important. So when it says that Jacob goes to the land of the eastern peoples, guess what? He's, taking, he's, ta- he's going to people who are a step away from God's will. Secondly, water and wells. Water and wells. In the Bible, so many times, water and wells are um, uh, connected with salvation. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, there was a, an abundance of water. How many rivers f- flowed through the Garden of Eden? Four. Four rivers. That many rivers. That much salvation going right there uh, through the Garden of Eden. Uh, when Abraham uh, had to make uh, Ishmael and Hagar leave the family, they went out and they were in a parched and dry place and they thought they were going to die. And the angel of the Lord comes to Hagar and says, I, w- I want you to be encouraged. God's going to make you and, and him great and all this stuff. And then she lifted up her eyes and the angel of the Lord showed her a well. Showed her a well. Uh, and even in, um, uh, even in the story of Noah, uh, what cleansed and saved, saved the earth, destroyed the earth, but also saved the earth, is water. And even in the New Testament, there's a place in 1 Peter where the reference is made that they were saved through the water. They were saved through the water. And for you, even after your... Well, let's, let's stay in the Old Testament for a moment. When uh, God brought the people out of Egypt, He brought the people out of Egypt, uh, what did they go through? The Red Sea. Their salvation was through the Red Sea. Saved them by destroying the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. They were saved through the waters. Uh, the enemy was destroyed by the waters. And for you, even... After you start following the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a Christian, you have that conversion experience, and you say, I, I, I'm following the Lord. I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's your first obedience after that? Baptism and water. There's so much symbolism here. And then finally, the stone. The stone. And the rabbi, uh, and I'll certainly take it from him, he's a messianic rabbi. He knows a few things about the Messiah, right? Uh, he preaches the Messiah all the time, and he said in the Old Testament so many times the Messiah, and that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah is connected with stone. What does it say about him in the Old Testament? And he quoted it. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, the foundation stone, the most important stone of all, but the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Okay? So look for those symbols. Look for those symbols. Assume something about these people. It's the land of the eastern peoples. They're far away from the will of God. There's a water well. Salvation is coming. The stone, God's chosen one, the Messiah, okay, uh, is symbolized in here as well. Let's keep reading in verse 4. Jacob asked the shepherd, so he's arriving at this place in this well. Jacob asked the shepherd, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. And he says, where are you from? And they say, Haran. And he says, whew, made it, all right? He knows he's going to Haran. He's never been to Haran before. But when he finally hears somebody say, I'm from Haran, he says, all right, I've made it. The Lord has brought me here, has has made my my journey safe. Verse 5, he said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? And that's his his uncle uh, on his uh, mother's side and his father's side, actually. Yes, we know him, they answered. And then Jacob asked them, does he have shalom? Is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. And so now you know, uh, guess who's entering the story? A new person is, is entering the story. Uh, who are the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who was Abraham's wife? Sarah. Who was Isaac's wife? Rebecca. Who was Jacob's wife? He's not married. He's a young single man. Who's his wife? Rachel. Okay. Or at least one of them. Mm-hmm. Verse 7. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back 
to pasture. You see, you'd normally water them early in the morning or late in the evening. Why are they doing here in the middle of the day? Shouldn't they be out grazing? Shouldn't they be out grazing? So this is a little bit strange. He says, what, what's going on here? There's a strange custom here. And they said, we can't until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. And so they've got a strange custom here. Uh, and of course, you go to any foreign land, they're always going to have strange customs. They're always going to do something a little bit different from the way you did it back home, okay? Uh, but they've got something else going on here as well. What I feel like this verse is really sort of pointing out to us here is that uh, why would you put such a huge stone over a well that you have to have so many people there uh, to open it up? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just take a, a smaller stone and put a smaller stone over the, the mouth of the well? That way, anybody can come at their leisure and get the water. Why? So why would you do it this way? Well, remember, it's a dry and thirsty land, and it's an arid place, and there's not a whole lot of water around. Even in American westerns, oftentimes out west, in West Texas or whatever, there was a huge fight among all the cattle ranchers over water rights. And so here, there's a, there's a fight over water rights. And I, what I think you have here is a group of people that are all sort of surviving together, but their, their society or their water cooperative here is all built on a strong mutual distrust. And so they have put a stone there that's so big that nobody can just sneak over here and get a little water. Everybody has to do this together. And we can all watch each other water our flocks. Everybody observes everybody here. And now we put the stone back over, and now everybody leaves, right? Right? There's, there's no trust uh, among these people, and the water is so precious and so rare that they have to create some kind of a system where nobody can get the upper hand, okay? And so Jacob asked, why are you doing this? And they said, well, we've got this thing, all right? And we dare not, we dare not remove the stone until everybody's here, okay? All right, what do you think is about to happen? The man of God shows up, and, and uh, oftentimes um, the status quo is disrupted. While he was still talking to them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd, just like Rebecca, uh, coming to the water well. There's a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of deja vu in this story. Okay? Uh, Isaac didn't come up, but uh, Abraham's servant came up. And how did he meet Rebecca? She was coming to a water well. So here's Jacob, and he's gone north, and he's coming maybe to the same well, maybe to a different well. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but here comes the, the wife uh, for, for the patriarch. She's coming to the well, and they're going to meet here at the well. And remember, for Isaac and Rebecca to get married and have a child, it was not just nice, and it was not just time for them to have a family. Remember, God's plan of salvation in is uh, based upon, or it's... Um, the, the contingent is the patriarch is married and they can reproduce together. All right? And in nearly every, in, in each generation, there seems to be some sort of, uh, of uh, obstacle to that happening. Okay? The plan of salvation, any time the kingdom of God is coming into an area, the enemy is always going to put some kind of an obstacle there. And for, for Jacob, it's not going to be lack of marriage and it's not going to be uh, uh, lack of fertility. Um, it's going to be that he was in Beersheba and he better not marry somebody. He better not marry a local girl. He's got to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles in order to find a suitable wife. All right, let's keep going. I'm rambling a little bit here. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, 
daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep all by himself. And I don't know. I don't know how to take this. None of the commentaries or anything uh, really talked about this being a miracle. Okay? So we've got a couple of situations here. Either it was really that large of a stone, and Jacob is either just that much stronger than all these guys, or it's a miracle of strength, and he moved the stone away all by himself while everybody else is watching, or the stone really wasn't that large. It's just that everybody knows if you move this stone by yourself, wrath will come. You'll have a big fight on your hands afterward. So I don't know. But normally in the Old Testament, in the Bible, when people list miracles and talk about miracles, this is not one that they list. The commentaries never looked at this and said, it's a miracle. So I have no idea how to take it. You can take it whatever way you want. But Jacob did, came here, and he upset the status quo because he didn't do this in the cooperative method. And everybody was probably shocked. Maybe it was a miracle or maybe the, his audacity. Everybody was shocked that he moved the stone all by himself, and then he starts watering his uncle's flock. Of course, he's going to bless his own family first. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Now, this is not an untoward kiss or a romantic kiss or anything like that, but I'm sure she was still a little bit shocked because she doesn't know who this guy is. All right? So remember, everybody, don't go kissing girls that you, you know, don't have permission to. Okay? Even if you have permission, maybe, you know, be careful. But he, he doesn't kiss her in a romantic way. He kisses her in a familial way. And he began to weep aloud. He had, he had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. Okay? Now, I want to just go ahead and pause and recap what just happened here. Okay? And there was something that Jesus said in the New Testament several times, or in the Gospels several times. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay? And whenever he said that, whenever you read across that in the Gospels, what he means is, not everybody's going to get this, but some of you will. All right? And that's what he means. So here I am. I'm going to say this. Uh, he who has ears to hear, he or she who has ears, let, let them hear. God's chosen one leaves his home, arrives in a sinful land. The stone was rolled away miraculously. Salvation, symbolized by water, is brought forth from behind the stone, and then turning aside, he sees his bride. And so a passage that I looked at and said, I'm not really sure that there's a whole lot here, but there was so much there. There's a picture of Christ's redemptive work right here. What happened when Jesus came? Jesus leaves his father, the throne in heaven, comes to a sinful land. And the stone was rolled away after his death on the cross and the, in the resurrection. The stone is rolled away. And now salvation is available for anyone who believes in him. And your first obedience is to be baptized in water to show that you have been saved. Show that you have believed in him. And then turning aside, he sees the bride. And who is the bride of Christ? The church. The church is the bride of Christ. And all of this happened in the New Testament. But so many places in the Old Testament, it is foreshadowed by something that somebody did. And so here's Jacob. And Jacob is not Jesus. Jacob is not the Christ. Jacob is not the Messiah. But for God's work at the time on earth, he is God's chosen one. God's chosen one. 
at that moment was Jacob. And chosen one, that's what Messiah means. So God's chosen one, God's temporary Messiah, not the eternal Messiah, not Jesus, but this temporary Messiah, this patriarch, Jacob, whose name later will be changed to Israel itself. He comes, he foreshadows his descendant, his descendant, his descendant who was before him. And that is always interesting about uh, the patriarchs is to remember that Jesus came from them as a descendant, but he was always before them as their ancestor, as their creator. All right, let's keep going. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him. Remember, same kind of kiss, non-romantic. He kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. And I think it's funny, all these things. What things? The news. Jacob, Laban hasn't had contact with Abraham's family since Jacob was born. Since before Jacob was born. And so, what a long conversation that would be. Catch me up on 40 years worth of family news here. Don't spare any details. We don't have cable. Just tell us everything. And why have you come here all by yourself with no camels and just your wallet and one pair of shoes? What's going on, Jacob? And boy, does Jacob have a story to tell about why he's there. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. Welcomes him in uh, like family. Now, just as a spoiler alert, Laban's not a good guy. So keep coming back and, and hear the story of what happens with Jacob and Laban here in the land of the north. And hear what happens with, with Rachel. Because next week, the story's going to take a nice romantic turn. And everybody likes a good romance story, right? And do you like a romance story with some weirdness in it? You're going to get it next week, all right? So be sure to be here next week to get all your... Uh, Weird, your weird romantic story. But what I want to get at here is that Jacob has found himself in a place he never thought he'd be. Uh, but he goes there knowing that God is with him. God is sending him. He, he may feel like he's running. He's running from his brother. He may feel like he's trying to uh, just save his skin and go somewhere. He never thought that this might happen. But now he goes with the assurance that God is on his side and God has things for him to do and that he's God's sort of chosen man for the hour right here to do God's kingdom work on earth. And he enters Haran or Padan Aram with that confidence behind him, with a spring in his step, wanting to make a good entrance. And so what he does is he upsets the status quo and he ingratiates himself to Rachel and to Laban and starts doing God's good work up there. And so I want you, I want you to think about yourself and about your life. And Maybe you're in a place right now where you thought, I never thought I'd be in this situation. I didn't think life would turn out like this. And I don't know what to do. Well, I want to give you some, uh, here are your three options. You can sink into despair. You can whine and complain and try to escape it all the time and say, this is a situation I have to escape. Or you can assume that God is with you and God has, in fact, sent you into this situation, into these circumstances, in order to learn and grow, in order to glorify Him, in order to bless the people around you, and in order to upset the status quo for the good. Not to just be a troublemaker, but to bring the kingdom of God to a place where it never has been. 
But that is for the people that God uh, has called. And that is for people that God has a relationship with. So if you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing I would do is not look at myself as Jacob. I would look to Jacob as Jesus and say, I am the dry, parched person here who needs to have my soul refreshed. I need the stone rolled away. I need a drink from the well. Come to Jesus. Drink deeply from the water of life that he has given you. And then go into your own dry and parched and thirsty lands and be a blessing. Do not look at your circumstances as exile, as, as though you'd been driven away from God. If he is your savior, God is your father, then he is with you. He may send you to a dry and thirsty land like Mongolia, but he's there with you every step of the way, hoping that he can use you, my chosen person, for this workplace, for this home, for this school, for this uh, community club, community organization, whatever it is, he can use you in that situation. Okay? So have a new perspective on life and circumstances and situations and say, how can God use me here? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you will help us all to look at our life and say, I never thought that would happen, but I believe that God is in control. And Lord, I believe that you have uh, you can grow me here. You can turn me into a better person here. You can mature me here. You can conform me into the image of Jesus Christ here. And then you can use me like someone who was sent here. Please, Lord, help us to see our lives with that optimism and have that spring in our step because we know that you go with us no matter what situation we go into. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. See you next week. Have a good afternoon.